Welcome to the tape ministry of Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, whose mission is to present everyone mature in Christ. It is our desire that the tapes of these services and messages from God's Word will touch lives deeply and encourage a closer walk with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. If you wish to contact the church for any reason, please phone us at 253-851-7779 or write us at Chapel Hill Presbyterian Church, Post Office Box 829, Gig Harbor, Washington, 98335. Now may God richly bless you as you join the people of Chapel Hill in worshiping the Lord and listening to the good news of Jesus Christ. Does it make you proud that we are investing in the work of Whitworth College through our missions funds year after year? You are our investment, and uh, we're very pleased to have you here and very proud of you. For those of you who would like more than the taste, than the hors d'oeuvre you're going to receive today, I'd remind you of the Whitworth Annual Christmas Festival Concert. Last year we hosted it. This year it's only fair. University Place is going to be getting it in Tacoma. Uh, that's a Saturday, December 4th, and uh, you will find some brochures in the back. There's also one in Seattle the following evening, so I know you want to pick this up. I, I know also that tickets go quickly, so if you're interested, get back there and pick these up and buy your tickets because they go fast. How many of you remember the movie sequel, Free Willy Part 2? Any of you see it? It was the story of an orca whale and the family that adopted him and the utter upheaval that he brought into their lives. I have another sequel for you. It's called Free Kitty Part (laughs) 2. For those of you who missed the first installment last week, Free Kitty Part 1 is the story about a pastor who was hounded by his family to buy... A, a free cat, to acquire a free cat. He finally agreed. They named this free kitty, Kit. Within two weeks, Kit had a herniated diaphragm that required major surgery. And what that means is all of her bowels and the lower part of her chest cavity moved up into her upper chest cavity. The wise pastor, when he was told this by the vet, realized that he really only had one smart option. He thought to himself, this is a new cat. We don't have years of experience with this cat. We can start over with a new, fresh, healthy, free kitty. (laughs) Then the pastor looked into the teary eyes of his daughter, Rachel, and discovered the real meaning of powerlessness. (laughs) So the free kitty had surgery to the tune of about $500. Here's the sequel. Since... Then our free kitty has been back to the vet twice for two overnight visits. She has had a fluid on her little chest that had to be drawn off twice. The vet, bless his heart, took her home so that she could be watched around the clock by his daughter at their house. Kind of a kitty ICU, I guess. <laughs> so the bill on free kitty is, is uh, really going up. I have suggested that we rename uh, the cat Whitworth. <laughs> I knew you'd appreciate that. (laughs) You've asked about the kitty. 
And uh, so I thought instead of a mailbox, this is Kit or Whitworth. <laughs> Stewart said, I am now absolutely stooped to the lowest of the low. I have children and now pets up around here. Um, you can see a little scar right there. She is looking, she does not like this, but she is really doing what she's going to hide. Um, ordinarily, in our uh, series that we've been doing on the seven letters to the seven churches, I would have a prop that I pull out of the mailbox. Uh, Kit is the prop today, you'll find out later why, but I thought the idea of putting her in the mailbox probably wouldn't go over with anybody, <laughs> including, including the cat. So, so you may say hi to little Kit and we'll let her go back. She's looking pretty good though, isn't she? considering the fact that she's absolutely traumatized right now. Thank you, Carol Merrill. Uh, <laughs> you'll see later, I hope, the point of all of this. Let us uh, prepare to turn to our text this morning. As I said, we come to the very last of the letters of the, church, uh, the seven churches in the Revelation. And today we come to Laodicea. Laodicea lay about 100 miles east of Ephesus. And so basically we've made a complete route, a circular route. The postal route started in Ephesus, went up the coastline, turned inland, and returned down, and ends now at Laodicea. Laodicea was extremely wealthy. So wealthy, in fact, that when a devastating earthquake hit the city in AD 60, they were the one city in this area that did not need help from Rome in order to rebuild. They were fabulously wealthy. In fact, the Laodiceans prided themselves on three things. Uh, their financial wealth, their textile industry, for which they were well known, and that's how they acquired much of their wealth. And they were the producers of a popular eye salve that was used to treat eye wounds. It was called Phrygian ointment. They exported it all over the world. Now, you may say, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Pay attention to those points because it will come back in a moment and you'll understand why. The, but Laodicea, with all of its great strengths, had one major weakness. It had been built on the juncture of two highways. And because it, they chose to build it there, what they didn't take into account was water supply. And so in order for Laodicea to get water to them, they had to build a, 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 a long pipeline. Uh, they were about three or four feet high. The diameter of the pipes were huge. And they ran for six miles from the springs where the water, where the water source originated. The consequence of that was that by the time the water arrived from the springs through those big pipes to Laodicea, it was tepid and foul-tasting. Now, knowing these things, give ear to the word of the Lord as Pastor Jim Mead brings it to us today. You'll find that in your worship folder or you can turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 to 22. Listen. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write... These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say... I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, 
pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And now, O Christ, speak your word to us as we come again to this letter to a church 2,000 years ago. By faith, we believe that it is also a letter directed to us. May we receive the word, both the harsh word and the gospel in it, And because we have heard and listened, as you have enjoined us to do, may we be strengthened in our walk with you, for we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. As most of you know, I lived and ministered in Bakersfield, California for nine long years. Um, North of Bakersfield in the San Joaquin Valley is a town called Hanford, California. Any of you had the privilege of being in Hanford? What is the one distinctive feature of Hanford, California? You're probably saying there are no distinctive features. (laughs) And in that you would be right. You speak truly. Uh, But in fact, you probably never turned on the water spigot in Hanford, California. Because if you do, it stinks. The water smells like rotten eggs. It smells that way all the time. And there's no getting away from it. It makes you sick. The minute you turn on the faucet, it makes you sick. I could not bring myself to to drink the water. We went there, took our youth group there. I couldn't drink the water the whole time I was there. I actually candidated for the Presbyterian Church in Hanford. They decided uh, that they didn't want me, that I was too young and too evangelistic for them. Uh, And I thank God because I don't think I could have drunk that water for for the rest of my ministry there. It was horrible stuff. Laodicea was similarly afflicted. They were famous for their wealth. They were famous for their beautiful textiles. They were famous for their eye salve. And they were infamous because of their lousy-tasting, lousy-smelling water. And Jesus uses this piece of information to drive home his point to the church at Laodicea. Do you find these to be harsh words? Are these rather shocking words, really, as you read through them? I don't... I don't know if there are any more shocking words in the letters to the, to, the to the churches than Jesus' rebuke to the Laodiceans. Listen to it again. He says, I know your deeds, that they are neither cold nor hot. I wish they were either one. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Wow. How'd you like to hear Jesus saying that to you? The word means literally, not spit, but what? Vomit makes it even a little more difficult to read in the English, doesn't it? It is by far the most graphic, most violent, most distasteful reproof that Jesus delivers to any of the churches in the book of Revelation. Do you remember the name David Cash? 
I bet you don't, but the minute I tell you, you will remember the story because I think all of us were horrified by the story. David Cash was a 19-year-old Cal Berkeley sophomore. And he came to our awareness because he was the young man who watched his friend, Jeremy Strohmeyer, attack a seven-year-old girl in a ladies' restroom in a casino in Nevada. Now, do you remember the story? This man, David Cash, walked away without trying to stop the attack on the girl or reporting it. The little girl was sexually molested and she was strangled. Strohmeyer was charged with murder and kidnapping and sexual assault. David Cash was charged with nothing because he was just a witness. And in an interview later on, he said, I'm not going to get upset over someone else's life. I just worry about myself first. Does that make you sick? It should. It makes me sick. It makes me sick that someone would perpetrate such an act on a little girl. It makes me perhaps even more sick that another person could stand by, watch such a thing occur, and do nothing about it. As horrific as the criminal act is, I think we can almost understand the vicious barbarity of such an act more than I can understand the vicious indifference of one who doesn't even care what they see occurring. What is it that says that causes Jesus to want to spit out the Laodiceans, as is the language that he uses here? Is it the idolatry of the Pergamum church? Is it the immorality of the Thyatiran church? Is it the hypocrisy of the Sardesian church? No, apparently it is worse than all of those things. What is it that causes Jesus to want to spit them out like this smelly, foul, lukewarm water that they drink? It is apathy. It is indifference. It is nothingness. They, like our friend David Cash, just don't care. You don't yet understand probably why Kit is such a wonderful parable for our morning. We've had climbing ropes and we've had a rose to demonstrate first love and climbing ropes to demonstrate endurance. But why Kit? Why a little kitty? Because when her diaphragm ruptured, everything in her lower chest cavity slid forward. And it, she, actually, she suddenly looked like a champion weightlifter. Her, her waist was like a pencil, and she was buffed out, you know, from the chest on, on up. And when we looked at the x-ray, we could not even see her little heart. We couldn't make her heart out because it was so crowded out by the rest of the organs in around her. And down in the, her gut, where everything should have been, there was... Nothing. Apparently that describes the Laodiceans perfectly. As far as Jesus is concerned, they had nothing inside for him. They didn't particularly care. They didn't love him passionately. They didn't hate him passionately. They just didn't care. They could take him or leave him. No big deal. Yada, yada, yada. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were one or the other, he says, because... But you are neither, and because you are neither, because you are lukewarm, I will vomit you out of my mouth. You realize what Jesus is saying here? It's rather disturbing. When you take it on, at face value, he is saying, I would prefer that you love me passionately. But if you won't love me passionately, I would rather that you what? Hate me passionately than that you treat me with indifference. Love me or hate me, but don't ignore me. Don't treat me with indifference. Don't feel nothing towards me. Is it hard for us to hear that Jesus might prefer that we would despise him passionately rather than we tolerate him indifferently? 
But when you think about it, it makes sense. It makes sense in our human relationships because love and hate really aren't so far apart, are they? They are not opposites. The opposite of I love you is not I hate you. The opposite of I love you is what? I don't care about you. You don't matter to me. I don't really care about how you feel. I don't care what you think. I don't care about you, period. These are the worst words a wife can hear. They are worse even than words of hatred. Because at least hatred has passion. Our hatred grows out of a scorned or misused love. When we discover that a beloved is cheating on us with another person, first we go through a period of mourning and pain, and then that love can easily turn to hatred. That's because they are so closely linked. It is not because a person doesn't care anymore. It's precisely because she cares so passionately and intensely. When I am counseling a couple in my office, I would far rather have two people who are screaming in anger at each other in my office. At least it tells me that there's still something there, that they still care about something. But it is when I look over and I see the dead look in the eye of one or the other partners and silent lips, the look of total indifference with the arms folded, that look of apathy that I know that the marriage is truly troubled because one of them doesn't care anymore. Love can pretty easily turn into hatred. And by the way, the opposite is true. Um, how many of you women ended up marrying a man who the first time you met him said, you said to yourself, I would not marry that guy if he was the last man in all the earth. Anyone want to raise their hand and admit to that? <laughs> and I bet there's more out of you out there that haven't raised your hand but felt that same way. It's not so far apart, this love and hatred, but love and apathy, love and indifference, they are the worst. No one wants to be irrelevant. No one wants to be ignored. Not Jesus, not even pastors. Uh, especially not us pastors. Do you know what my favorite greeting is on a Sunday morning when you leave the church? The favorite sort of thing you can that I can hear, and it's not too hard for, for you to imagine. What I love to hear is God touched me today. Your sermon spoke right where I was. I was so convicted by the Holy Spirit, I'm going to do this or that. The worship experience brought me into an encounter with Christ. That's the sort of thing I love to hear. That's the favorite response you can offer. Take the notes down. Now, here's my second preferred response. If I can't get that, I would rather hear than, I am so angry, I don't think I'm ever coming back here again. <laughs> or how could you say such a thing? Or you are so rigid. Or who get, what gives you the right to tell people how they are supposed to live? Now, those responses are not particularly encouraging, but at least they tell me that someone is listening. They are struggling. They are passionate. They are committed to something. They are alive. Now, I prefer love, adoration, adulation. But if you won't give me that, then hate me passionately. Now, do you want to know the worst thing you can say to me as you walk out of the door? This is the absolute worst thing. You are already stricken. We've had a good, we've had a good lesson in, in English language so far. You've learned that it is espresso, not expresso. We've learned that it is prostate, not prostrate, Right? <laughs> You learn that it is revelation, not revelations. Now here is the word that you will de delete from your, I'm about to talk to the pastor uh, language. Here's what I don't want to ever hear. That was a nice sermon. <laughs> nice? 
I don't want to preach nice sermons. I want to preach sermons that comfort, that encourage, that convict, that challenge, frustrate, delight, exhort, vilify. But I don't want to preach something nice. It is an indifferent word. It is a polite word. It is an apathetic word. It is a word that does not care. It's when you can't think of anything else to say or don't care to think of anything else to say. You say, that was a nice sermon, Pastor. Apparently, when, when we come together on a Sunday morning, whether you realize it or not, we are coming into the presence of the living God. That is why we call it worship. We are worshiping the risen Christ. Whatever Jesus is to us, I don't think that nice cuts it. Think about the image that comes to us out of chapter 1 of Revelation. His hair and face is white as a welder's fire. He has blazing eyes that stare into your soul. He has a double-edged sword that extends from his mouth like a, like a sharp stiletto. Whatever that vision might be. Nice, it ain't. Apparently, Jesus would prefer passion. Even idolatrous passion. That he can redirect towards himself rather than cold, blase indifference, the fire of which can never be relit. One of the most dangerous parts about being a, aspects of being a part of a church or maybe of being a student at a wonderful Christian college like Whitworth is the temptation to think that you've got it made spiritually. That you can now kick back in your religious easy chair. You've got the God thing taken care of. Just kind of float along and turn your attention to other more pressing matters. And Jesus says, I despise that. I despise that attitude of indifference. When I look upon lukewarm followers of me, tepid, indifferent, apathetic folks who claim that I am Lord, but who don't really care what I have to say to them, to me, to them it, it makes me nauseous. It makes me want to puke. That's what he's saying. Now, if that doesn't frighten you just a little bit, you aren't paying attention. I know that I sat there as I was writing this. I just sat there and, and thought about it in my own life. I've been a Christian for more than 40 years. Is it possible that I have settled into a, a lukewarm, blase attitude in my own faith? And is it possible that there's anyone here today that as they listen to these words, they would say, yes, I, th that might be me too. I'm just kind of... Ah, floating along, I don't really care. Man, may the Holy Spirit speak to your heart today. May He wake you up with these harsh words. Now, why was it that the Laodiceans had become so apathetic? It is because, according to the text, they had decided that they did not need Jesus anymore. He didn't have anything that they needed. He didn't have anything to offer. They were independent. They were self-sufficient. Laodicea was prosperous. It had everything they needed. To the church at Smyrna, back in verse, chapter 2, verse 9, Jesus said these words. He says, I know you're... Yet you are rich. To the Laodiceans, he says just the opposite. He says, I am, you say, I am rich, and I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Do you remember the three things I told you that Laodicea prided itself on? It's wealth, it's I salve, 
and its textile industry for making clothes? Do you find it interesting that Jesus chooses to attack right at their points of self-perceived strength? He says, you are... You think you are wealthy. You have this eye salve. You think you, uh, uh, you have this beautiful textile industry. And I, I tell you that you are poor and you are blind and you are naked. It is coincidental, perhaps providential, that the text for this Sunday falls on a stewardship Sunday when we're preparing for our banquets. But I think that it serves as a very graphic reminder of the dangers that we face as rich Gig Harbor Christians. And you say, I'm not rich. I said, by the world standard, you are wealthy beyond their wildest imaginings. We are all rich. The more we have, brothers and sisters in Christ, the more successful we are, the more we acquire, the easier it is to forget how utterly dependent we are upon Jesus Christ. The easier it is to forget that, in fact, we too are wretched and pitiful and poor and blind and naked and that we are delusional if we think that we can take care of ourselves without the loving, saving, compassionate initiative of Jesus in our lives. Now, how about some gospel? We've heard harsh words. Is there any gospel in this text? In fact, there is some wonderful good news. Here it is. Jesus doesn't spit them out. Did you notice what he, what he says there? He says, I've, I've spit you out of my mouth. What does he say? Read it to me. I am about to spit you out of my mouth. It is a wonderful rebuke. It is a wonderful warning. It is a, it is a three-alarm fire bell. You are at risk, Jesus says, and I am about to spit you out of my mouth. But in fact, we discover he has not yet done so. Aha! So yet again, just as the church that was already dead, but suddenly we discover there's a hope for life, now the church that is just about to be vomited out of the mouth of Jesus, we discover that there is hope still. And how do we know that? Because we discover in the next few verses the real passion of Jesus, the real desire of his heart, which is in verse 19, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. That is what Jesus wants to do. What Jesus wants from us is instead of lukewarm indifference, he wants intimate relationship. The parting image that we have of Jesus in this text and in this section is not a Jesus who, in fact, spits these people out of his mouth, but rather it is a Jesus who stands patiently at the door, knock, knock, knocking, saying, won't you let me come in? I cannot open the door from the outside, but if you invite me in, I will come in. I will live with you. I will love with you. I will relate with you. We will have the most wonderful relationship that you can imagine. Won't you let me in? Back to our little kitty one more time. Before her surgery, as I said, we could not even find her heart on the x-ray. And frankly, Kit was the perfect cat at that point, as far as I was concerned. Uh, She came to you when when you called for her. She sat on your lap, just kind of gasping for air. You could stroke her, and she purred, and that was about all she did. You cannot imagine the difference in the x-rays before the surgery and after. For after I saw the x-rays from the, after she'd had surgery, there was her little heart right where it belonged with plenty of room to beat and grow. And frankly, you cannot imagine the difference in her behavior. <sighs> now when I call, she doesn't come. You can imagine how I enjoy that. 
She hides under the sofa or in the bed. She, I can't get her out. I have to take a, 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 a pillow and shove it under there to make her come out. And when I don't want her, she jumps up onto my lap while I'm working on my computer, puts her little paws on my little buttons. Last night as I studied, she was going crazy on the couch next to me, her ears folded back like a little mountain lion, and she looks at me over the hedge and then drops down and then flips around the t- and up on the- and then she's just crazy. In fact, she's acting like a kitty is supposed to act. I wonder who here this morning is having trouble finding their spiritual heart. When it comes to their relationship with Jesus, that you are lethargic, you are disinterested, you are going through the paces, and that is about it. My friends, if you would dare to say to Jesus this day, I hear you knocking, and with all the strength I have, with as much interest as I can summon up, I invite you, please come in. Please come inside of me. Please rearrange me. Please set my heart free so that it can pound for you. I'll bet you would be amazed at the difference that it would make in your life. As the ushers come forward, let us unite our hearts in prayer. Lord Jesus, save us from our independence. Save us from our self-sufficiency. Save us from anything that would cause you to become old hat, cause us to become blasé. Kindle in our hearts a new love, a new passion for you, Lord, that cares about what you say to us, that obeys what we hear, that is willing to take great risks and dream great dreams because you have invited us to do it. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you for your love, for your passion, for your harsh words, and for your gentle beckoning back to us yet again. Thank you that you do not give up on us. And I pray, God, that this moment even would be the beginning of a a continued sense of renewal and revitalization in this church as we give ourselves more completely, more honestly over to you and become passionate about the one who was passionate for us. As we give to you now of our wealth, we are mindful that you gave it to us in the first place, God. And on this day, when we are reminded of how poor we really can be when we do not have you, let us give generously and joyously and take and use this wealth, this money, to further the work of your kingdom. For we ask these things through Christ our Lord. Amen.